we left off last time with the descent of man into sin. So the end of the Parshish Bereshis ends with a, um, with a prelude to the flood, where there's a, a certain devolvement in the character of people, um, and, the, and there's a very interesting dialogue that the Almighty has with himself. It's a very strange dialogue, because whenever, we, you know, whenever the Torah tells us anything, our first question should be, okay, what's the lesson for us? Because the Torah is a book of lessons. Thus, information that's not pertinent to us is not told to us. You know, when people ask the question that we asked maybe last week, or last time, was, uh, you know, uh, the question that people commonly ask with Genesis is, well, there's a lot of information missing. And the question that we ask is not why there's so little information, it's why there's so much information. Why do we need to know all the details? We know they might have created the world and Mazel Tov, we're done. Because the, the, the purpose is not, it's not a book of, of anthropology. It's not what it's about. It's a book of lessons. So every detail has to be told because it's relevant to us. So that's always our spin on the matter. So we see over here, a, uh, this is in Sitch 3, all at the end of last week's Parsha, um, where People start sinning, they're taking wives, there's, there's a, there's a, there's a, um, you know, moral de- decrepancy or, or devolvement that's happening. And then there's a, a verse here, so 6-3, and Hashem said, my spirit shall not contend evermore concerning man, since he is but flesh. His days shall be a hundred and twenty years. What this means is that the Almighty is disappointed with mankind and uh, and he's saying that all I have is I'm going to give mankind a 120-year leash to see if they can rectify their ways, and if not, I'm going to do away with them. And we know the story of our Parsha is where they had the 120-year leash, and uh, unfortunately they did not rectify their ways, and the flood came, and we started basically anew. So to me, it's interesting. Like, why do we need to know God's calculations? Now, of course, to understand just the notion of God's calculations is a very bizarre idea to us. You know, it's very hard for us to try to think in, on God's terms. So that in itself is problematic. But what's the lesson for us? I had an insight, which I think is really relevant, because we, you know, we're going to talk about the people of Noah, of Noah's time. We see a little bit of the, the, the sins that they're going to do, and it's very easy for us to judge them. And that's not just in Noah's in the story of Noah, in the story of the Torah, but certainly in the story of our lives. We meet people, and people not necessarily of the highest character, and you know, caliber of character, and, uh, and behavior, and ethical refinement, and it's very easy for us to judge. And we're told that the Almighty says, He's giving a 120-year leash for people before He casts His judgment. And I was thinking, perhaps there is a very relevant lesson for us. We're told... Uh, multiple times in the Torah, that we have to try to emulate God. We have to go in the ways of God. And just like God is kind, and God is benevolent, and God's merciful, we too should follow suit. Additionally, there's a, a uh, Jewish trope that we wish people to live till 120. So I was thinking, if the Almighty has patience with someone and waiting for them to repent to mankind, to humanity, for 120 years, and we're told to emulate God, perhaps we too have to have a 120-year leash 
before we cast judgment on people. Um, you know, we're programmed in a way to be very critical of other people. Uh, and we see that the Almighty, who knows everything and therefore should be the most critical, is given this 120-year leash to mankind, and perhaps we too should emulate that as well and not uh, castigate uh, someone or denigrate someone at all. Because, well, maybe if they're 121 and they haven't changed their ways, maybe then we can consider. Our Parsha starts with, with Noah. Actually, we, we actually see him a little bit at the end where he's contrasted with the people of his generation that everyone's sinning, but Noah or Noah found favor, found grace in the eyes of God. And it's interesting, whenever we, we read about Noah, he's a little bit of, a, of an enigmatic character. On one hand, he's given compliments to the degree that we almost don't see anywhere else in the Torah. Uh, Noah found favor in the eyes of Hashem. Like, how big of a compliment is that for ha- to have that, you know, embedded in the Torah forever? It's tremendous. That's the end of last week's parsha. And this week's parsha starts off, this is the children of Noah. Noah was a man who was righteous and perfect in his generation and who walked with God. Those are uh, four major compliments from the Torah in one sentence. He was a man, which means he was there was some degree of perfection. He was tzaddik, he was righteous. Tamim means he's perfect. And he walked with God. It's almost overwhelming the uh, effusive praise bestowed upon Noah. However, if you read the words very critically, you'll notice that the compliments given to Noah, the lauds that the Torah is giving to Noah, is a little bit, has a limiting principle. What does it say? He was righteous in his generation. So everyone jumps on this. What does this mean to be righteous in someone's generation? That obviously seems to limit. In his generation, he was righteous. Maybe in other generations, who knows? We know he's righteous in his generation, but maybe he's not righteous for all of eternity. So Rashi gives us a little bit of a sampling of, of some of the uh, traditional deliberations ab- about Noah. Rashi says that there's really a, a major disagreement amongst the sages about Noah. One opinion looks at him very positively. Why? Because Noah was in a generation where everyone was evildoers. Everyone was, everyone was, they were all sinners. Yet, he was the shining star of his generation. He was the bright light in the darkness. Now imagine if he had a society that upheld his values. If he didn't have to constantly resist the encroachments of the people of his time. Imagine if he had Abraham, you know, in his generation to bounce his ideas off and to grow and develop uh, alongside. How much greater would he have been? So the one way to look at Noah is that Noah was so great despite the moral failures of his generation. And thus, Noah would have been ever greater had he been surrounded by other righteous people. That's one opinion of the sages. The other opinion of the sages is looking at him a little bit negatively. Why? He was righteous in his generation. But had he been in Abraham's generation then he wouldn't have amounted to anything. Both opinions 
about who Noah was and what, how can we define his greatness are contrasting him with Abraham. One opinion is very positive. He would have been even greater with Abraham. Another opinion is, is a little bit negative. Abraham would have been so much brighter as uh, a person of righteousness that Noah would have, wouldn't have even been considered. So to me, this is interesting. Noah's obviously a tzaddik. The Torah, the Torah calls him a tzaddik. Yet, he's, he's being dogged by this Abraham shadow, so to speak, that we're going to meet Abraham in the next parsha. And really, at the end of this week's parsha, we already, we already meet Abraham. And there's clearly a contrast being drawn in the Torah between Noah and Abraham. So I was thinking that really both elements are true. Uh, on one hand, you know, Noah was righteous. Personally, if you looked at every car- every deed, every thought, uh, every action of Noah, you could have said this is justified, this is righteous. And in fact, the Torah several times in the narrative describe how Noah was fastidious on fulfilling exactly what the Almighty said. I said, build, build an enormous, enormous boat. And he did it. He actually built the enormous boat exactly the way the Almighty wanted. And the Torah, like, just, well, wow, like, it's, it's like impressed with him. Exactly the way the Almighty instructed, he did it. If no one could question Noah personally, it seems like there's a fundamental difference between Abraham and Noah. Abraham was someone who was focused not only on personal greatness, but also on improving the entire world along with him. To Abraham, when he was informed about the downfall and the pending destruction of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, what did he do? He undertook this mission to try to intercede on their behalf to pray. He says, well, maybe, maybe there's 50, maybe there's 40, a very long description of his attempted intercession upon the behalf of those people and try to save the sinners. Abram was someone who didn't allow his greatness to be chambered up in himself. That's it. He tried to disseminate it to the world at large and to affect and change and improve everyone around him. Indeed, had Noah been around him, Noah had been ever more, ever more greater. Noah, on the other hand, he was great personally, but that's really where it ended. In fact, if you read the verses critically, it seems clear that even Noah's own children on their own merit, should not have survived the flood. They only merited the salvation of of being allowed into the ark only because they were the kids of Noah. So he wasn't even able to change his own family. And I think this is really reflected in the legacy of, of Noah and Abraham. What's Noah's legacy? It seems like it's kind of like the stop point we have Adam, and we have the sin, and we're trying, the whole Torah is trying to figure out how do we grapple with the sin, how do we change, how do we get rid of the Yetzirah that is now part of the human experience. And that's the, the premise of the Torah, and that's where it starts, and that, you know, that's with, with the problem, and the Torah is the solution, and Moses is the result. Moses is someone who's able to undo everything that Adam did to negatively influence. He's able to undo that entirely. You know, that's what the Torah is all about. Well, where, where, where does Noah fit in this continuum? Noah's like this, you know, d- does he change everything? Does he improve the world? Does he begin the process of, of progress and moral development? I don't know. What We don't really see much of a change. We see, you know, if you look at the people of his generation, they were sinners, and then they have the flood. And then what happens right after the flood? We have the Tower of Babylon. It seems like it's more of the same. It seems like Noah didn't crack the code 
of what it takes to actually begin this massive process of what we call Tikkun Olam. What, he was righteous, unquestionably righteous. As opposed to when we meet Abraham, Abraham is really the beginning of the tide being turned. And I think, like I said, this is reflected in their legacy. I got to say that This is reflected in their legacy. Right? The, the, the seven Noahide mitzvos, these are seven universal mitzvos. They apply to everyone, not just to the Jews. It's called after Noah, even though the majority of them were actually given to Adam. They're not called the seven Adam mitzvahs. They're called the seven Noah mitzvahs. And I think the idea here is, is that Noah's legacy is to become a decent person, a good person, but not necessarily someone who's going to change the world. And these seven mitzvahs are mitzvahs that you need to just not destroy, to do no harm, to allow society to properly function. We have to have this basic code of morality reflected in the seven Noahide mitzvahs. That's his legacy. As opposed to Abraham, Abraham gets the first, the first Jewish mitzvah, so to speak, which is, which is the collection of mitzvahs that are there to not just do no harm, but to actually change the fundamental underpinning problems of the world brought about by Adam at the beginning of the Torah. Okay, so, so what happens? So the war, the, we, we meet this really interesting Noah character and the Torah goes into detail here about the devolvement and the corruption of, of man. Uh, we're told that there is uh, lots of thievery or theft, robbery. Um, there is the three cardinal sins are being transgressed wantonly by everyone. Uh, even further, if you read the verse critically, you'll notice that it's not just the humans that are sinning, it's the animals are sinning as well. The Talmud tells us that there was interbreeding amongst animals. And almost as if the behavior of the humans got seeped in to the kind of the fabric of the world that even the animals were affected. And in fact, if you look at what actually happened uh, in the flood, um, the entire depth of uh, of plowing and planting was all overturned. It's almost as if the the aura of sin had seeped into the vegetation, and the animals themselves were affected by it. And there was lots of interbreeding. And the only animals that survived are the ones that didn't interbreed. So we know that ninety nine point nine percent of all species that have ever lived are extinct. When do they go extinct? A lot of them go extinct even today. Uh, but we're told in the Torah that during this e- ecological tragedy of the flood, many, many species also went extinct as well. And why did they go extinct? Because of their, uh, of, of the fact that they were corrupted by the humans. So what's the solution? We have a problem. We have a, a, a morally corrupt system that's so fundamental that it's affecting the animals. It's really bad. What does the Almighty instruct him? To build a teva, to build an ark, specific instructions of what materials to use, how to, you know, how to ensure that it's, it's aired, it's watertight, and how big is it? It's 300 amos in length, and 50 amos in width, and 30 amos in height. 
what's the idea behind this ark? You're going to get into the ark, the water's going to come, and you will survive and start a new civilization um, once the destruction is, is finished. Now, it's interesting that we're given very precise dimensions of the ark. Um, it's 30 amos long, it's 50 amos wide, and, and 30 amos high. Now, how big is an amo? An amo is the length of someone's, uh, from, from their elbow to the end of their fingers. Just like we have a measurement called a foot, which is the size of a foot, roughly, give or take, right? Um, that's what an amo is, and an amo is one of the measuring uh, units used in the Torah. How big is an amma? Amma is around between 18 to 24 inches. So I think for our purposes, let's just assume it's two feet. It's roughly around two feet. So this is a very big boat. This is 600 feet long, and it's 100 feet wide and 60 feet tall. It's a very, very, very large. We'll get to more, more of that in a second. What's also interesting, I found that... Um, the actual dimensions of making a boat, a flotation device, whose length, right, a sixth, of its, its width is a sixth of its length, right, 50 to 300, and its height is a tenth of its length. That is actually the precisely maximum, if you want to maximize buoyancy and cargo capacity, that's exactly the size of a ship you would make today. In 1843, there was a, a steamship called the Great Britain. And this was a revolutionary feat of engineering. Uh, it was the biggest vessel afloat for a long time after it was built, and it was able to carry so much. And then someone, asked, someone says, wait a minute, let's look at the dimensions. And it turns out it was almost precisely the same, you know, the same dimensions with regards to width and length and height as the Ark. And in uh, more recently... In, uh, in 1994, a bunch of uh, Korean naval architects, they proved that the arts dimension is the best for stability, most optimal uh, stability. And in fact, what they said, what they came up with their findings was that the arc would be able to navigate waves exceeding 30 meters if the thickness of the wood was a mere 30 centimeters. It's not very thick, especially for such a huge boat. What's the plan with the ship? The plan is to fill, fill it not only with Noah and his family, but all the animals, or at least all the animals that haven't corrupted themselves, vegetation, and to be there for survival when the chaos is happening outside. Now, one of the problems is you have to fit all the animals in. How do you fit all the animals in? Noah and his three kids and their wives, is a total of eight people. You can fit eight people uh, very comfortably. The problem is it's not just the people, it's also the animals. So, you know, how how do we fit so many animals? And a lot of animals are very big, like elephants and lions and giraffes. These are big animals, and we have to fit all of them into this vessel. So this is discussed. Everyone tries to figure out this question, one of the big questions uh, on the sweets parsha. So one opinion says that, well, it was a miracle. How did he get all the animals in? It was a miracle. That's, that's, uh, an approach taken. Yes, it was a very, very large vessel, but it was a miracle. Now, 
or, or maybe take smaller animals. Okay, fine. I'm fine with any one of these uh, approaches, but I want to kind of just analyze the, just analyze the problem and see the various uh, approaches given. So we have loads of animals and a very large boat, but according to many opinions, they did the calculation, and it seems that even though the boat was very large, it wouldn't be sufficient uh, for so many for so many animals. So why build so? So it was a miracle. So it was a miracle. So why build such a big boat? Once we're relying on miracles, why would we need to build such a huge boat? If, if it's all going to fit in a miracle, just build a small boat and the miracle will cover your, cover your problem regardless. And one opinion given Rabbeinu Bachai is that, well, whenever you want, if, if there is going to be a miracle, you want to minimize the miracle. So the fact that such a huge boat could carry a lot of animals, well, that's undeniable. Now, whether it uh, could carry so many, well, that's already a more minor miracle. And that is the way we approach miracles. That's what his answer. Uh, the Ramban, Nachmanides, he says that the reason why he had to build such a big boat, because remember, Noah spent a long time building this boat. The Almighty tells him there's 120 years. He starts building right away. And takes, we, we, traditionally, we, we're told that he took him 120 years to build it. Obviously, it's a huge boat. It's Noah and his family. Maybe he has some help. But it's, it's really a monumental undertaking. Okay, so he's building this enormous boat, says the Ramban. Why, why do you, if it's a miracle, why do we need to build such a huge boat? He says the Ramban, well, the point of the boat is such an impressive ship. And people will start asking questions, why are you building the ship? And, and no one will tell them, we'll give them no an opportunity to influence the people around them. They'll see him building this, what's, what's he doing? You know, you, if you see someone building such a huge boat, you ask questions. If you see something, say something. And people saw him, and he said, well, they might as well destroy the world with a flood, and I'm building it because I want to survive. And people would hopefully be influenced and say, well, maybe we should rectify our ways. Unfortunately, it didn't work out like that. But at least it gave him an opportunity. Uh, one other opinion says like this. What's an ama? An ama is the size of someone from someone's elbow to the end of their fingers. Now, Noah lived, he was 450 years old. Who knows his physio- physiology is obviously different, different than ours, right? Not, I don't know anyone that can live that long. So they, they were different physiologically. So the Ibn Ezra, he says, wait a minute, if they were different physiologically, is it so unreasonable to suggest that maybe their amos, their arms were larger? So Noah's told, build 300 amos. So he says, what's an amo? Maybe an amo was the size of this table. I don't know. Amo could have been a lot bigger. Amo's bigger the boat result resulting is bigger as well. So who knows how big this was? It was three. It was 300 amas long, but for us, that's 600 feet. For, for Noah, it might have been 6,000 feet. I don't know. We don't know, right? Once you have the same dimensions, it'll float regardless. It'll have maximum buoyancy regardless. There's a little bit of a problem with that. The problem with that is the Ramban himself says, he says, well, if, if there's larger arms, there's larger people, it doesn't help you. You need a bigger boat anyhow. Um, unless we can say that maybe the people were larger, but the animals were smaller. If you have smaller animals and bigger arms, you have a bigger boat, and then, yes, the people are big, but so what? The, the animals that make up the bulk of the, of the passenger load, if they're smaller, then, um, like maybe they use babies, like you said, like you suggested, then it wouldn't be a problem. But I want to, Either way, let, 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 I want to I want to suggest something here, just just to give us a just to give us a picture of how big this place is. So I'm working with the assumption that we're just using regular amos, amos the size of ours. We're gonna two feet, two feet, so six hundred feet, 
long, 300 feet wide, and 60 feet tall. That is 3.6 million cubic feet. It's not small. And in fact, if you were to break this down into cells, into rooms, because it wasn't just one big massive party, every animal maybe was given its own room. Yeah, this was where the elephants were, and this is where the leopards were, etc. You could have a thousand cells of 10 feet by 10 feet by 10 feet. You could also have 30,000 cells of 5 feet by 4 feet by 4 feet. So you could have, you make, if you make different size cells, maybe you make many, many different kinds, all tailored to the, to the different animals. But to give you a sense of how large that is, 10 feet by 10 feet is a fairly large room. That's a pretty big room. You have a thousand of those, five feet by four feet by four feet. It's a, you know, it's a smaller little closet, but it's not small either. You'd have 30,000 of those. If you were to kind of put these end to end, all these cells one after another, you could create a zoo that's 27 miles long. If you put just the size of these rooms end to end, you could have a zoo that you could walk 20 cents, the length of a marathon. That's the, you know, that's how big it is. It's not small. Is it possible that in, you know, in a zoo that's 26 miles long, you could fit all the animals? Remember, most of the animals are very small. And we're not including any fish or any, any, any animals that live in the water. Yes, there's a lot. There's a lot, but it's, it's a very, very, very large boat, and it could have fit a lot of animals. Now, that being said, I'm not trying to say there was no miracles. Remember, you gotta fit food, you gotta fit, uh, you gotta fit, you have to find ways to navigate from cell to cell. Clearly, like this is not, these are not precise details, but the point is it's still significantly large. One other approach, just to round this out, is that Noah didn't take, um, every breed of every animal, he took kind of one core animal that eventually kind of evolved into the multiple different breeds of that same animal. That's another opinion said as well. Either way, he built this massive boat, and that's going to be his home for the next, for the year of the deluge. And that's, you know, one of the big centerpieces of our, of our parsha. Now, it's interesting, this whole notion of this you know, t- t- terrible destruction that's happening outside, but this, uh, you know, the safe confines of the ark inside is an interesting idea that I think we can apply to our lives as well. Remember, we're learning Torah, we're always trying to find lessons for ourselves. And it has been said that every generation has its variant of a flood. There's some sort of destructive element, whether it be uh, a physical threat, a mortal threat, or uh, a spiritual threat that makes us forget about God. That's also a, a threat to our lives. There's something in the world that's very dangerous, and each one of us have to try to find a way to create our own personal ark that's able to give us uh, uh, refuge from those elements. And it's interesting, if you look at the Torah from beginning to end, you only find instructions to build two structures. It's only two structures that are built. Uh, we have structures that exist, but the specific directive, build a, a, a structure of this length and this size and this height, etc., is only told to us twice. Number one, Noah. 
And number two, when Moses is instructed to build a tabernacle. Those are the only two structures that were given instructions in the Torah to build. What's interesting is that they're, they're kind of similar and a little bit different. If you were in the ark, why were you in the ark? You were in the ark to protect yourself from the elements that were destroying the populace outside of the ark. It was one of refuge. If you were in the tabernacle, you weren't there because you couldn't survive outside of the tabernacle. You were there because you wanted to have a certain spiritual ascent that was only possible inside the tabernacle. Thus, you could have survived very nicely outside of the tabernacle, but you went there because you wanted to grow. And I think it's interesting that we look at, at as the Torah, at the, at the Torah as a little bit of our mobile ark. It's a transportable ark we could take with us. Now, the, and, and it really fits both of these categories. On one hand, if you don't have Torah, if you don't have any instruction, well, how could you possibly survive in the world, the world, remember, the world is antithetical to Torah. The world is designed in a way to make you forget God. That's the, that's the nature of the world. Without Torah, without the refuge of the Torah, it's very likely that you will devolve into what the world is offering. So we need the Torah because it is a refuge. Just basic survival we won't survive outside. But not only that, the Torah also has the uh, the element of the tabernacle to provide an opportunity for spiritual greatness as well. Well, interesting uh, idea. Um, the, the notion of a yeshiva, of a place for Torah study, a designated location for Torah study, has very frequently been described as a little bit of an ark and a little bit of a tabernacle, a little bit of both. Because you have Torah, you have survival, and you also have greatness. Okay, so he, he builds the tabernacle, he puts on top of it a window, and the Amadi tells him to go collect the animals. Now, if you read this, the story very critically, he's told to pursue the animals, to find one male, one female. But when it actually happened, he doesn't actually bring the male and female himself, they actually come to the, to, uh, uh, to the ark themselves. And it's a little bit similar to the idea we mentioned prior. Noah's, Noah's demanded to put in his best effort, but ultimately the way it actually happened was a little bit miraculous. Noah is fastidious in fulfilling the um, requirements to build the ark. And it is mentioned again in verse 22, that Noah did everything exactly the way the Almighty instructed. Now, it's interesting that the uh, the Bible critics, they like to make a big deal about what seems to be an inconsistency in the, in, in the Torah, in, in this narrative. Why? In verse eight, 19, he's told, And from all that lives, of all the flesh, two of each shall you bring into the ark to keep alive with you. They should be male and female. Birds, animals, everything that creeps, everything bring two of each. So every animal, how many does he need? Two. And then if you fast forward a little bit later, on verse 2 of chapter 7, he's told, of every clean animal, take seven pairs, a male with its mates, a total of 14. And every animal that's not clean, you take only two, a male and its mate. Which seems to be a little bit of an inconsistency. Several verses prior, he's told, 
bring two. And then right a few verses later, he's told, no, 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 don't bring two. Bring 14 for the kosher animals and two for the non-kosher animals. What's going on? So I think it's it, this is an, just a good example of how the Bible critics sometimes don't actually read. They don't actually read it with the intention of trying to understand the lesson. What do we read? Noah's told, build a boat. How long did he spend building the boat? Years, decades. He builds a boat and he has to make these cells and he has to devise a, a way to try to fit everything in the ear. He really spends, he invests his life into it. And he does it with utmost dedication and care to fulfill exactly everything that he wants. What does he might say? Uh, uh, what does the Torah say about Noah? Noah did exactly the way that the Almighty instructed him. And not only that, the Almighty sensed and instructed Noah and informed Noah that I want you to come, you and your family, to the ark because I saw you as a righteous person before me in this generation. Now, the Torah told us already that Noah was righteous. Yet it's repeating it here again. Noah was righteous. His generation was wicked. The Almighty says, we're going to build an ark. We're going to save you and destroy them. He builds the ark. He does it precisely, exactly the way he was instructed. And then he's told again, you're righteous. Why is he told again, you're righteous? That was already established. The answer is, is that Noah grew. Noah developed. Noah became more righteous. Righteous is not a static thing. You either have it or you don't. Righteous, there's, you know, there's a spectrum. There's a continuum. Noah, over this dedication to the ark and to the Almighty's instruction, he became a greater person. So, what happened? The Almighty initially told them, I want you to bring two of each animal. And then he became a greater person. So what does he might say? I want you to bring now seven pairs plus one pair for every other animal. Why, why is, why, what's, what does it matter if the animals are kosher or not kosher? So if you read the end of the story, you know that Noah brings sacrifices to God after he gets out of the ark. What does that mean? It means is that the Almighty is warming up, so to speak, to this future of what's going to be after the flood. Originally, Noah was righteous, but he wasn't righteous to the degree that he would ultimately become. So the Almighty says, oh, we'll survive. I want Noah to survive, and then we'll start from scratch. Noah becomes even more righteous. As a result, the Almighty is saying, I want to actually have a relationship with you. You are more righteous, and thus you are deserving of a relationship with God, and therefore I want you to bring now sacrifices uh, after you get out of the, uh, of the ark. So thus, it's not inconsistent to say, well, it says two, and now it says 14. Just read what happened in the interim. Noah changed, learned the story, and now it makes a whole abundance of sense. If you look at the, the verse that talks about Noah actually going into the ark, it, uh, it seems to describe the characters in a little bit of a bizarre way. This is from verse uh, 7 of of, uh, of chapter 7. It's actually told twice in verse 18 of chapter 6 and verse 7 of chapter 7. When it tells, when the mighty tells Noah who to bring into the ark, he says, Noah, Noah's sons, Noah's wife, and Noah's wife's sons. It seems to separate the men and the woman. It doesn't say Noah and his wife and his kids and their wives. It says Noah and his sons and 
Noah's wife and Noah's wives, Noah's sons' wives. Now, the fact that the men and women are kept separately, that's told, uh, Rashi tells us, is that the men and women were required to be separate for the duration of the flood. Why? It's improper for someone to be joyous while others are suffering. Normal marital relationship was suspended because that brings a degree of joy and it's improper for someone to be joyous when there's so much death, destruction, and devastation all around us. In, in a similar way, we're told when the Jewish people were crossing the Red Sea in a, such a miraculous fashion, uh, they were being uh, taken safely in dry land but the Egyptians were being swamped, which is almost a very clear parallel to this story. There's, on one hand, the, the Almighty chooses uh, one people to survive, and the other one to be washed in the water. And the angels are so impressed by this miracle, they say, we want to sing praise. It's a common theme in, in Jewish prayer, that we're trying to sing the praise of the angels. So the angels say, we want to sing praise. And the man says, no, 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 no. My handiwork is drowning in the water, and you're going to sing praise? Even though this is, you know, God made a decision that's, you know, it made sense to him, so it must be righteous. Even when there's some righteous downfall of the wicked, it's justified. Justified downfall of the wicked is still not not a time for us to revel. You know, we hope that we're we're going to be righteous. That's what we hope. And we know, unfortunately, that the people that are not righteous are going to have to pay consequences. Maybe we'll see it, maybe we won't. But either way, that's not happy for us. We are told, and this is maybe what Abraham, this is maybe more Abrahamic than Noahide, but we have to feel a responsibility for humanity. That's what, that's, that's the Abrahamic mission. That's the Abrahamic destiny as well to try to help bring humanity back towards perfection. Now, unfortunately, there are people that are working against us, against our mission, and, you know, against this force of progress and goodness that we're trying to help bring into the world. These are our enemies, so to speak. We should be delighted when they, when they, when they, when they, when they fall down. Well, what did Abraham do? Sodom and Gomorrah, that represented everything that was anathema to Abraham. They're going to be destroyed. Let's make a celebration. This is good for us, right? No, what does Adam, Abraham say? No, we're going to pray for them. Try to help them. And I think if you recognize, if you recognize the goal, then you don't get so partisan. And I think, you know, maybe this is a little bit of a lechon season, you know, when people get so, so partisan, they forget that we're really, we're trying to achieve the same goal, both sides of the aisle, at least hopefully, should be trying to achieve the same goal. And it's just, we're just disagreeing on tactics. And if so, you know, then we're really united in purpose. It's just we're divided in tactic and in, in methodology. And I think that would be very a very helpful idea to integrate into our political landscape because there's so much bitterness and acrimony uh, in, in our political environment because we don't realize this point. We don't realize that we're all trying to uh, get towards the same the same goal, and uh, and I think certainly on a bigger scale, we're talking about the world and humanity. You know, we have to feel a sense of responsibility 
And when we realize that the ultimate goal is to bring the world back to God and all of humanity back to God, then we would realize that it's inappropriate to be in a celebratory mode when, uh, when the downfall of the wicked happens. Now, the Torah continues its uh, interpretation of Noah's character. If you read the description of what happened once it starts raining, the Almighty tells him in verse 1 of chapter 7, go to the ark because I saw you as righteous. And when does he actually go to the ark? So verse 7, and Noah and his sons and his wife and the wives of his sons, they with, with them, they go to the ark. And the last three words here are critical. Because of the waters of the flood. They might have said go to the ark. Did Noah go to the ark? Yeah, he went to the ark. But how does the Torah explain why he went to the ark? Not because God told him, but because of the waters of the flood. Now, what this actually means, there's different ways to say this that I've seen. But if you just read the words, it doesn't say that Noah went to the ark because God told him to. He went because of the water. The way Rashi, the way the Talmud explains this, is that Noah also, his faith wasn't perfect. Noah's faith wasn't perfect. He believed, but he didn't believe at the same time. Why? Because he only came to the flood, he only came to the ark because of the water. Now, what does this mean? Noah invested a hundred years in building the ark. Clearly, he had faith. That's not really in doubt. But, there's a certain element of Noah that was, uh, impressed maybe by the water or weather still mattered to him. You know, to, to know, if someone had perfect faith, God says, go into the ark. Weather doesn't matter at all. It could be sunny and 72 degrees, and the forecast is just more of the same for 10 days. 10-day forecast, all just 72 degrees and clear skies. That's what the folk, that's what the weather forecast. God says, go to the ark. You run to the ark. It's, 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 it's as if it's pouring rain and there's floods. It's the exact same reality. To Noah, there was a little bit of the reality left over that what the sun says and what the what the clouds say, what the forecast says, and what the weather man says, that still held a little bit of water. No pun intended. That still mattered. And to the degree that that mattered, Noah is being called out for it as a man of imperfect. Of course, if we had Noah's faith, we'd be very, very righteous. And that would be the hope that we could reach Noah's faith, to invest 120 years building the ark, right? That's, a, that's an act of faith. And God tells him, you're, you, you're a tzaddik. We're told twice he's a tzaddik already. Clearly, Noah is someone of tremendous faith. But the Torah is very critical, specifically with the most righteous. And even though he had this great faith, there was something, some slight smidgen of lack of faith because the waters mattered. He went into the ark because of the waters. Does that mean that he waited until the waters were up to his neck? No. It means that, you know, he's like, he, he may, might have looked out of the window and says, oh my gosh, it really is raining. Well, the, yeah, the, like God says, go into the ark, the rain doesn't actually matter. Like to be impressed with the rain doesn't matter. Like uh, just an example of this. There was a um, an analysis of a certain section of Jewish literature that brought someone in the first half of the 20th century 
to conclude the certain measurements of a vessel of the temple. Okay, the precise size of a vessel of the temple was deduced based upon its statement in the Rambam. And then, as fate may have it, they found the actual archaeological remains that proved his point. So the guy matches on and publishes an article and says that I will surmise based upon this textual evidence that this is exactly what it is. And then, sometime later, they actually find a physical remains and it's, it's exactly the way he says it. So someone comes and rushes in with the, with the abstract. It's like, oh look, you were right. He's like, yeah, I knew I was right. I, it said in the Rambam. Not at all impressed. The fact that it says it in the Rambam is much more impressive to him that there's some sort of physical remain. Because what's real? Is Torah real? Is God real? Is faith real? Is this table real? Is the water real? What's real? Whatever someone determines is their reality, that's their faith. So, if someone said, if someone has complete faith, the only thing that's real is God. If someone has partial faith, weather is also real. If weather is also real, to the degree that weather is real, that is reducing a little bit of man's faith in God, because that's also a factor, that's also a variable, and that's a lack of faith. Of course, maybe it was 99.9% faith in God, but weather mattered, Torah says it, and that is criticism of Noah. Um, okay, so they go into the into the ark and they have all the animals, and it starts to rain. It starts as a drizzle, like we said, because it's still giving Noah uh, Noah's generation, the people of his generation, the opportunity to repent. And when does this happen? So the Torah tells us very explicitly: in the middle of a day, gives the date in the Midday, in front of everyone, Noah, his three sons, his wife, his his children's three wives, they walk into the ark. It's interesting that this wording appears several times in the Torah. Several times in the Torah it says, in the middle of the day, it appears when Abraham circumcised himself, it appears when the Jewish people left Egypt, and lastly, it appears when Moses died. And there's a common theme for all these episodes. All these episodes are events that people surrounding the event, people of the society at large, should have and wanted to resist. In fact, Rashi here tells us what happened. People came and said, um, uh, Noah, why are you building the big boat? He says, well, they might come and destroy the world. Oh, really? Okay, let's see what's going to happen. So Noah tells him, no, maybe puts up signs. In seven days, there's going to be a flood. Destroy the world. Repent now. People are laughing at Noah. It's a crazy guy. Can you imagine how silly he is? Look, look at the forecast. And in fact, they tell Noah, they tell Noah actually, if it does happen... We're not going to let you on the boat. We're going to, we're going to stop you. You're going to be dead and die with us. If it happens, you're going to die with us. So what does he mind saying? In the middle of the day, when everyone's watching, Noah's going to walk, him and his wife and his kids and his daughters-in-law, they're all going to walk into the ark unmolested. What actually happened? They might have taken care of it. 
But the point is, is that this thing happened in front of everyone. And it's interesting, like this theme, like that uh, Abraham, Abraham is going to circumcise himself. Abraham is going to take this massive stand uh, against the Yetzirah, against the prevailing world. And he, has to, he does it in front of everyone. Right? Midday. Why? Who, let's see who, let's see who's going to resist. Let's see what's going to happen. Come on, try to resist. Let's see what you got. <laughs> Show me what you got. We're doing it at midday. Let's, let's see you stop us. Jewish people, you're, Jewish people are going to leave Egypt? They're going to sneak out in the middle of the night. No, there's no clandestine covert operation. Let's get, let's tunnel them out of, no, in the middle of the day, when everyone's watching, we're going to walk out. Moses, God's going to kill Moses? We're not going to let it happen. Really? You're not going to let it happen? Midday, everyone's watching. Let's see you try to stop it. And I think that this is a good theme for us to kind of keep in mind. We're always trying to prognosticate the future. And I think that it's it's probably a better option for us to look at the past, look at history, than to try to telegraph the future. But we try to think about, you know, the future. So, we, you know, we if we were around 200 years ago, and I would read you the verse in Deuteronomy that says, all the Jews are going to go back to Israel. From all four corners of the world, you would say, really? Really? This is going to happen? How's it going to happen? You have the Ottomans there, then you have the British there. They have the Jews firmly embedded in, in Europe. They're all going to unite and come to Israel. It seems insane. But, and we would try to maybe figure out how it's all going to happen. And we would have a hard time. We wouldn't know how it's all going to happen. No one could foresee all the events in the future. But it happened. And it happened at midday. The Brits leave. And we say, we have a state. Come after it. Come on. Who, who, who wants to start a fight? Oh, we're going to have a war. Let's have a war. Let's see what happens. And, you know, we're, are we fully home? Are we done? Did all the prophecies, were they, you know, were they uh, actualized yet? No. We still don't have all the Jews in Israel. We still don't have a temple. How are you going to build a temple? A temple mount? You know what there is? There's an Islamic structure that's been there since 691. Imagine the backlash. That's a good question people asking. You know what? It's harder to prognosticate the future than it is to look at our past. But let's look at our past. We see, like, when the Almighty wants something to happen, we'll do it in midday. We'll drive a bulldozer up, lift it up, and that's how you remove it. Come stop us if you can. We don't know how it's going to happen, but we don't have to worry, be worried about that. Like, things that are the Almighty's responsibility, we have enough things on our own shoulders. You know, let the Almighty worry how it's going to happen. But well, how will it happen? is in the middle of this day, come try to stop us. If you, let's, see, let's see you try. So they go into the ark, and it rains for 40 days. Uh, and then there's very, very, very strong uh, rain that covers all the mountains, 15 almost above the mountains. And they're in the ark. The ark's lifted in the air. All the animals are dying. All the people are dying. Really, really, really sad situation of the people who were not in the ark. And it's interesting, we don't really know names of any of these people. They're not really significant to our story. Of course, it's tragic, and there's, you know, we're hinting at the fact that it's, there's, the, that what's happening is not happy. It's not, it's not happy. But we don't really know anything about these people. We don't know, like, we just know that they were evil, and they refused to accept 
um, God refused to accept the words of rebuke of Noah to the degree that he did give it to them. And they're gone. And they're gone from history. It's, it's just a kind of sad thing to think about. But I think, in, you know, in the, in the context of the Torah, the Torah is, it, it's, it's, it's really a mission. It's a mission, and that's really the focus. The focus is what's going to be with the mission. And that mission is even greater than any individual or even any, any group. And this is a hard thing for us with our uh, humanistic attitudes to, to really think about. You know, Moses is one man. Abraham is one man. Noah is one man. Uh, yet what they represent is greater than millions of men. How is that possible? How can one man be so influential? And the answer is, is because that, that's just the nature of, of what the Torah is about. The Torah is about reversing the Yetzirah, eradicating the Yetzirah, bringing the idea of God into the world, Tikkun Olam. That's what it's about. That idea is more powerful than humans. It's, it's, it's a more powerful idea. So if one human represents that idea, they're more powerful than a whole generation. They're more valuable. We read all about Noah. What about the people? Where are, you know, where are the uh, memorials for these people? There is no memorials for those people. They don't matter, almost. It's sad to think about it. Because Noah is the hope for this idea. Now, of course, he's not the culmination of this idea. He's not Abraham. But he's a tzaddik. And the, the one tzaddik in, in the, in the ark, is more important to the Torah than the who knows how many millions of people outside of the ark. And that's a, a very striking idea to think about uh, in, in the Parsha. So everything's destroyed, all the vegetation is destroyed. It's really um, a total a total new slate, so to speak. So what happens? The waters recede, the Noah sends out the animals, the raven first, and the dove. The earth dries up and, and, and Noah is told to leave the ark. Now, what do we know about what actually happened during that time period? We don't know much about what happened. There's not a lot of details being given in the Torah. But there is some hints in, 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 in the verses of what, what actually happened. So God blotted out all the existence, man to animals, to creeping things, to the birds. They were all gone. Only Noah survived and those with him in the ark. So Noah, Noah didn't really flourish during this time period. He survived. Now, the Midrash gives us a, a little interesting story uh, about, about what happened during this time period. What it just tells us is that for the duration of the time, what was the role of Noah and his family? They were there to feed the animals. They weren't able to have a decent sleep. They were like sailors on a ship. <laughs> they, the whole entire time, they're running from the feeding schedules of all the animals. And one time, Noah was late to feed the lion. And the lion took a swipe at him. And thus, when it says, it says Noah survived. But he was like totally broken down. It's interesting. This, this, this story, this anecdote of Noah being late to feed the lion. Noah's working day and night, tirelessly, to feed all the animals. He comes late to the lion. Seems, seems like it's a little bit harsh for, for, for Noah to be punished by uh, his tardiness. Seems a little strange. So I think there's a few themes we could really draw from this. 
What's the responsibility of Noah? Noah is the only hope for mankind. This is, this is all we've, he's the last one left, the last man standing. And therefore, it's not, you know, he's not a, an individual. He is a species. Not only that, he's the species that needs to bring Tikkun Olam. As such, he, th- that's how much is on his shoulders. And, 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 and the Almighty specifically designed it in a way that he has to always be working, always be feeding, always be trying to help others. Because that is the new man that we hope will emerge. The new mankind that will hopefully emerge will be one of kindness. Where kindness and faith are linked. You can't have one without the other. They have to be linked. They're both a disavowal of selfishness. If you're selfish, you can't see God, you can't see your fellow man. They're the same thing. Therefore, Noah's being trained here. All of human history, all of the world, everything will let rests on you. Therefore, you can't be late. How could you be late? Everything matters upon you. This is the, this is the critical mission of the world. You can't be late. And therefore, every mistake that you made is amplified. Number one. Number two, what was the reason why the people got themselves into this predicament? There was theft. There was sin. Theft is a sin against mankind. Sin is a sin against God. How do you rectify that? With kindness. Because kindness is an unlocking of both the two. It's unlocking of your soul to expose yourself to other people, which, as a result, will expose you to God. Both of them are the same. So therefore, for the duration of the time in the ark, they had to be engaged in, uh, in, in, in acts of never-ending kindness, because this is how we're going to ensure, ensure that we don't fall into the same trap afterwards. So Noah comes out of the ark, and uh, he builds an altar, he brings the sacrifices, and we're starting from scratch. So what happens? There's a little bit of a, of a, of a kind of a sad epilogue to the story. Um, Noah, the man of the earth debased himself and planted a vineyard. What, what did Noah emerge from the ark with? He emerged with all the animals. He keeps a few animals for sacrifices, and the other animals are sent off uh, to repopulate. I know a lot of people are wondering why he couldn't have just swatted that mosquito and save us the uh, hassle. Um, but he had a mission, and his mission is to start rebuilding. Of course, it's a sad mission, but it's a vital one. This is what you have to do. So he has all the plants that he, that he prepared. He starts planting them. Well, which one does he plant first? He plants a vineyard first. Noah's like, I, I need to drink something. <laughs> <laughs> and the Torah is very critical of that. Now, not that he shouldn't have planted vineyards. He should have planted vineyards. But maybe that wasn't, shouldn't have been the first thing he planted. That's, once again, criticism. It's very slight criticism. It's the order of the plants. But the Torah is very harsh with him by calling him, he debased himself, Vayichal. And he, he also gives him a nickname. What nickname does he give him? Ish Ha'adama, the man of the earth. What was he called? The first verse, Noach Ish Tzadik. He was a man of righteousness. A man of the earth, that's, that's a step down. It seems like Noah had, a, a, after, in the aftermath of the 
of the ark story, of the flood story, Noah took a step back personally. And the Talmud, the Midrash, it actually contrasts him with Moses. Once again, this is like the, this is the problem Noah has. Well, don't compare me to Moses. Don't compare me to Abraham. But the Talmud does do that. Moses is also called twice by the, by the name Ish, man. Whereas Noah started off as an Ish Tzaddik, as a righteous person, man, and then he became an Ish Adamah, a man of the field. Moses began as an Ish Mitzri, uh, when he met his future wife, uh, the daughters of Yisro, they tell their father, Ish Mitzri, an Egyptian man. And at the end of the Torah, Moshe called the Ish Elohim, a man of God. So Moses has this ascendance, the trajectory is leaning, you know, is, is directing him, the slope is going up, he's always improving, and Noah seems like he took a step down from, from a man of righteousness to a man of the earth. And I think the lesson for us is that where we start is not necessarily in our hands. You know, we all have different backgrounds and different circumstances and different educations and different parents and different, right? That's not, it's, it's hard for us to determine where is the starting point of our spiritual life. But what we do, where we go, which direction we go, that's entirely in our hands. And Noah, indeed, yeah, he was righteous. And he was still righteous. But the Torah points out that there was a little bit of a, of a drop, and that's highlighted. And Moshe he was always uh, in, an, in an ascendant uh, direction. Now, we meet another character, and that's Canaan. And a few times we're told, sons of Noah came out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Yafas, or Ham. And Ham was the father of Canaan. And then in verse 22, Ham, or Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father's nakedness and told his brothers, his two brothers outside. And so what happened? Noah plants the vineyard. He needs his drink. He drank the wine. He became drunk. And he uncovered himself in his tent. That's the, the verse. And Ham, his son, who was the father of Canaan, which you just told that to me a, a little bit earlier, so what's the significance of that? He saw his father's nakedness and told his brothers. So what the brothers do, they took a garment and put it on their shoulders and walked backwards and covered their father's nakedness and their faces were turned away. They didn't see their father's nakedness. Noah woke up and realized what his young son had done to him, what Ham had done to him, and he said, Cursed is Canaan, a slave of slaves shall he be to his brother. Three times we mention Canaan. Number one, that Canaan is a son of Ham. Number two, that Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father's nakedness. Number three, when Noah woke up, he realized what his son had did to, had done to him, and he cursed Canaan. So what's going on over here? First of all, what did, what did, what did Ham do? He saw his father's nakedness, right? So his father's in a drunken stupor. He's unclothed. Ham comes in and sees it. He wakes up from his stupor. He gets sobered up. And he realizes what his son did to him. How did he realize what his son did to him? How did he know that in the interim, he, his son had seen his nakedness? It doesn't seem to make any sense. There's something we're missing in the story, right? And also, why did he curse Canaan? Canaan is the son of Ham. 
Why curse? If if Ham did something wrong, why curse Canaan? It seems very strange. There's a lot of there's a lot of questions. You just read the verse. We're just reading the verses here. I'm just showing you the problems with just reading the verses. Because you read the verses, you meet Canaan continually. Why is he at all a factor in the story? It's only Ham. Ham is the bad guy. Number one. Number two, he's drunk. He sees his nakedness. The other two brothers cover him. He wakes up. He realizes what happened and he curses Canaan. It seems very strange. Just a one-word Rashi, a two-word Rashi here. When it says that Ham saw the nakedness of his father, it quotes two different opinions of what that actually means. It's clearly a euphemism, but a euphemism for what? So one opinion says that he sodomized him, which would explain how Noah would figure that out. And another opinion is that he castrated him. Now, why would Ham do that? What would his motivation for that be? Well, you can see, you can imagine what kind of land grab is going on over here. You have, you have now a new world. You have three sons of, of Noah. There's this push to try to repopulate. Noah is probably going to want to have lots of more kids to try to help repopulate. And the world is really being divided up between the three kids of, of Noah. What happens if there's another kid of Noah? Well, then, yes, he has to get his slice. So Ham makes the calculation, Dad's drunk, I'll go castrate him. He won't have a fourth kid, and that way a third of the world is mine. So he castrates him, and what does he effectively do? He kills Noah's fourth kid, this non-existent fourth kid. Who was Ham's fourth kid? Canaan. Thus, precisely what he did to Noah is what he got in return. He, he destroyed Noah's fourth son, therefore his fourth son was destroyed as well. That's how it all makes sense. We have a tendency to read the Torah the way we read any other book. And that's, that's a problem. But you're, a lot of nuance goes unnoticed. Whenever the Torah says, and someone saw something, it's much deeper than just a mere vision. Every time the Torah says that someone saw something, it means they understood something, or they did something, or they something deeper happened. It's not just telling us a story in the you know in the way we would in, in our narratives. And that's why we have Rashi to help us uh, help us close that gap. Okay, so what happens afterwards? This I think, really I think completes the story. What what's the aftermath of the flood? So we meet all the kids and grandkids, etc. And then, of course, we learn about the uh, the Tower of Babel, Babylon, and we meet the fellow by the name of Nimrod. Nimrod is a great-great-grandson of, of Noah, and he's really mighty, and he is someone that really is, I think, emblematic of the problems that prevailed even after the flood. Nimrod is someone... If you read the verses that describe him, so this is chapter 10, verses 8 and 9. Uh, and Cush begot Nimrod. He was the first to be the mighty man on earth. He was a, he was a real, uh, a real leader. He was a mighty hunter before Hashem. And therefore it said like Nimrod a mighty hunter before Hashem. Now the fact that Nimrod caused problems, we know. We'll read about those. But he's described as if he's before Hashem. Now what does that mean? It means that even though Nimrod 
was someone who was instrumental in the next phase of rebellion against God, it wasn't because of lack of knowledge of God. Everything he did was before Hashem. He was always aware and cognizant of the existence of Hashem. That was never a question. And it's an interesting thing. The way, the way it's described in Jewish sources, Yodea Ribono with Rebo. Nimrod knew his master, yet intentionally rebelled against him. And to us, it's hard for us. We don't meet those people. There are still some people like that, but it, it's, 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 it's a certain spitefulness. It's, it's, uh, rebellion out of spite. The, the plan of building a tower and going to rebel against God presupposes the existence of God. That wasn't a question. And the capability of God to destroy. And I say, oh, we'll build the, we'll build the, we'll build the huge tower. And as a result, even if it rains again, we'll be safe on top. That's, it's a really, it's a really warped perspective. They're not willing to capitulate. They're not willing to submit themselves. And I think this really teaches us a, a, a lesson, I think, that could be relevant for us. You know, we're trying to learn about God, and the, the idea of faith, that's a central idea of our, of our life and our religion. But sometimes the knowledge of faith, it's like a double-edged sword. It can catapult us to greatness, provided that we allow it to be integrated into our lives. If someone knows God yet rebels, it makes them a much more dangerous rebel against God. Because it's not lack of knowledge. It's, oh, they know. They know that God exists. We want to spite him. Well, so their knowledge of God, in fact, is helping them to spite God, which is very problematic. But I think for us, you know, it's much easier to learn about God than to actually start behaving with that knowledge in mind. It's very, it's well, it's comparatively easier to integrate a certain ideology into your head than it would be to integrate that same ideology into your heart, so to speak, into your behavior, into your mannerisms. And it seems like we're being told here that in a weird way, I'm not trying, I'm not advocating this, but it's, you might be better off not knowing about God if you're not willing to integrate it into your behavior. Because Nimrod knew all about God and that specifically emboldened him in his efforts of rebellion. Just as an example. It's a little bit of a different example. So someone has Torah, but doesn't have kindness. Very, very harsh criticism the Talmud gives us for someone who has Torah, but doesn't have kindness. is similar to someone who doesn't believe in God. Someone has Torah, they have Torah. But the Torah is relegated to their mind. It doesn't at all affect the way they behave. It's like they don't have God. Because what does it mean to have faith? It means to have, to bridge the gap between what you know, what you actually are. To fill in is, tr- it's, it's, it's linking our mind and our heart. That's what it's about. That's what mitzvahs really are. Mitzvahs are to bridge the gap because it's a vast chasm between knowing something and actually living something. We, we learn about, we learn lessons. There's so many lessons we can learn from every parsha. It's nice, it's entertaining, it's interesting, hopefully. But the point is, is that we have to try to find a way to, inter, to inject that into our lives, to infuse our lives with those lessons. If we don't, then what do we have? Do we really believe in God? Do we really learn those lessons? Well, if they're just bouncing around in your mind, but they don't affect you, how different are we than Nimrod? Nimrod also, he knew, he knew a lot more than we do, we did. 
He was before everything before God. Twice it says he was a mighty hunter before God. People would say, like Nimrod, the mighty. He knew God. He knew. He knew there was a God in this, in this, in the, in the stratosphere or whatever. However, he understood that. But that emboldened him and that galvanized him to go say, "Let's rebel against what we know as God." And we have, we we can fall into the same trap on a, on a little bit of a lower level by learning about how to become a great person, but not actualizing it. So what happened? They build this tower. What was their motivation behind this tower? What was the idea behind the tower? Different opinions. Uh, according to one opinion, they said, well, let's go up to the mountaintop and we'll do idolatry. Uh, not mountaintop, top of the, uh, let's go to the top of the tower and do idolatry. Another opinion says, um, let's go up to the top of the tower and have war with God. Third opinion, let's go up to the top of the tower and just live there and we'll survive. Strangely, uh, we're told that they, let's, they, they climbed up to the top of this mountain with, um, with, with axes. And I said, we'll build a, we'll build a breach the skies of the heaven, so to speak, so all the water will come out. The mighty won't be able to use that as a weapon against us. Very strange motivations. Uh, but I think one thing is clear. It really shows that the Noah, the Noah approach of let's kind of consolidate those that have faith and get rid of everyone else. It doesn't really fix the fundamental problem. These were grandkids of Noah. They, they knew the flood. They, the story of the flood was very well known to them. This was, Recent history for them. Noah lived for a long time after the flood. They knew about God. That was not the problem. So what happened? Well, there's still something wrong here. It's something wrong. Specifically what happened, put, put, put that on the side burner. But there, the, the mission of perfecting humanity was not completed with Noah, clearly. Right afterwards, the next story we have, we see is an organized Rebellion against God. And I think that this really leads us in, into the character we meet all the way to the end of the Parsha. So we're told all the, of course, there was the dispersion of the people of, of, of the Tower of Babel. And we meet this very long genealogy line from Noah to Abraham. Uh, and once we meet Abraham, it seems like we're, we're linking the two. Adam is linked to Noah. Noah is linked to Abraham, and then Abraham begins the real transformation that's going to really not only address the symptoms of the problem, but address the problem itself. Abraham had his encounters with Nimrod. In fact, he was born under the dominion of of Nimrod. Nimrod was the monarch in his place. The Midrash tells us the famous story that uh, Adam's father was a... uh, wholesaler of, of idols, went on vacation, put Abraham in charge, and then Abraham took an axe and smashed all the idols, and then put the axe in the hand of the biggest idol. Abraham's father comes back and sees the devastation. What happened? He's like, what? What do you mean? They started arguing. Each one of them was saying, oh, I'm so I'm powerful, I'm more powerful, I'm more powerful. And the biggest one picked up the axe and started smashing everyone, and... Uh, and he killed, he destroyed them and he remained the last one standing. Of course, 
his father tells him that's not possible. He says, well, if it's not possible, why are you, you know, don't your ears hear what your mouth is saying? Like, why are we giving any credence to gods of, of, of stone and, and wood? Of course, Abraham is too much of an innovative thinker. He brings him before Nimrod. Nimrod says, well, you got to bow down to me because Nimrod was a, a, a demigod. And Abraham refuses. He's thrown into the fire and he survives. That's the story we're told in the, in the, in the uh, in the Midrash. Now, first of all, why is this story not told to us in the Torah? What's the reason why it's not told? Like I said, why is the reason why anything is told? Because there's a lesson for us. If you look at the miracles that happened in the Torah, all of them were foretold by prophets. The purpose, the, 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 the gain that we get from a miracle, we as people trying to accept the Torah, we gain a lot when we realize that the Almighty is involved in our lives and the Almighty communicates to us and a prophet can say, this is what will happen. So Moses says, there will be blood all over the land of Egypt unless you let the Jewish people go. And that actually happened. Whoa, what a miracle. But the fact that Moses foretold it, that puts in a different class of a miracle than a miracle that merely not merely, but saves a righteous person. Two kinds of miracles. There's miracles that save the righteous person. Well, how does that work? We spoke about it a couple of weeks ago. We said that if someone accepts upon themselves the yoke of Torah, then the yoke of uh, of kingdom and the yoke of the way of the, of the world is cast off of them. This is a, mish, a Mishnah in chapters of our fathers. What that means is, is that why does fire burn? Fire burns because the Almighty made a world with ro- rules of nature that fire has combustible properties. That's why. Thus, God forbid someone gets thrown into the fire, they will die. Because people are subject to nature. Nature says fire consumes, fire combusts, someone thrown into fire, they will die. But, if someone accepts upon themselves the yoke of Torah, then the rules of the world, the derech the way of the world, that is suspended. Now who controls what happens to them? God. So the guy throw, Abraham's thrown into the fire. Will he die or not? Well, it depends. If Abraham is subject to the laws of nature, he'll die. But if Abraham's subject to only God's oversight, then God will decide if he wants him dead or not. Then God decided he doesn't want him dead. So Abraham was thrown into the fire, wasn't, wasn't even hot. We're told in the, in the, in the Talmud that his hair didn't get singed. Nothing. It didn't matter. It doesn't matter what you do to him because he is not under your thumb. You can't, if, if God says, I'm determining what happens to him, it doesn't matter what someone else wants because God will trump that intention of the other person. He's throwing it to the fire. It doesn't matter. Well, that's Abraham's greatness. He's under God. That's a miracle, but that's not quite the level of a miracle as when a prophet says something will happen and that happens. Because this miracle of Abraham doesn't change us. Abraham was righteous. This won't happen to us. We go through the fire, we'll die. We're not at that level. So it's it's almost a little bit dejecting for us to say, how is this at all relevant to us? But the notion of prophecy being a conduit that gives us divine guidance that's a very relevant lesson for us because that changes our life. Because we have Torah, Torah given to us from God via the conduit, the prophet, and prophets have these power, and that will change our lives. Uh, we meet Abraham. Abraham is going to begin the revolution to change the world. 
We meet him at the end of this week's parasha. He starts traveling. He starts off in Ur Kazdim. He moves to Haran. And the beginning of next week's parasha, he's going to end up in Canaan, known to us today as the land of Israel. And history will never be the same.